Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. Go. <laughs> and do. Hey everybody. And right? do. Go right? and do. Exactly. Go and do. Welcome. Book. Welcome to the... Gravity Leadership Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Sternke. I'm here with Matt Tebby and Christy Penley. Mm-hmm. Uh, hello, friends. Mm-hmm. How are you? How are you both on this fine morning? We're recording yeah. this intro in the morning. Yeah, I'm wearing orange today. Yeah, just for just for, for fun? Tennessee University of Tennessee. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. Sorry, it's it. ingrained in me. Yeah. <laughs> Go balls. Uh, no, uh, just for uh, fun. Just, just for, for like fun. Uh, just orange for bri- is a fun color. I like yeah. bright colors. A fun color. Yeah. I just actually, I, I lead like a college group on Sunday nights at my house. Mm-hmm. And last night I asked them before we started, like, what color describes you and why would oh. you pick that color right now? Oh, and I'm like, you can answer that, like how you are, how you emotionally are, like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And it was fascinating the different colors that people said. Really? Right? I mean, yeah, like yellow and blue and the reasons mm-hmm. why somebody said like the, the mixed a- Kind of color when you mix all the colors together. That's kind oh. of like this weird color, you know. That's and the color of sludge. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no. it was fascinating me. It was a good Wait, question. Wait, a question that you just thought up, Christy, to ask them. I'm. I don't want to take credit. I am sure somebody asked me that at some point in my life. And but you were like, um, you put it into your little bank of yeah, I did. Breakers. Little yeah. intro. So, so are you? Do, do you okay. re, like reflect orange right now, Matt? Would you say like your life is orange, like fun, happy? Unique. I don't know. That's what I think of when I think of orange. All the all the time. Matt loves this my, question. All the time. Matt my life is fun <laughs> and happy. Bubbly. Ra- rainbows. I yeah, sneeze Matt rainbows. Has a very bubbly personality. It's hard to get Matt to focus on negative things. So. <laughs> hey Ben. That's the kind of sarcasm that could really do some bad work in our friendship. Oh, okay. Well, I'm just trying to I don't know. I'm just of trying all- something new here. So I'm just trying something new. The irony is, then maybe we should talk about what color you are. We could. 
I want to make it. I was joking, listeners. I was trying to be sarcastic about how Ben's going to ruin our friendship, and in being sarcastic about that, try to ruin the friendship. I'm just explaining the joke because I don't want anybody to think that I actually. uh, You're going to get letters. Get letters. Yes. (laughs) We're really concerned. I'm concerned about your your friendship. Um, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I don't know what color I wear. A lot of black. Okay. And I've not reflected very much on why I do that. It's a soothing color to me. Well, yeah. I, I just mm-hmm. want to put a, I just want to put like a little uh, mm-hmm. nerd, did you know, uh, when you okay. said all the colors swirled together, Christy, isn't black yeah. all the colors together? Isn't that what black oh. is? I don't think so. On... I think black and white are separate. Like, isn't, I don't know. I don't know. I was just thinking about like, the, just the literal experience of taking a bunch of colors like paint. And like yeah. mixing them all together and seeing what comes out, and it always looked like just sludge. Kind of like this purple like brown, brown color. Yeah, sludge. yeah, yeah. Chrissy, yeah. yeah. when you asked that question about our favorite color, a color immediately jumped to mind. Ooh, what was it? Puce. <laughs> what? I think that's the all the colors together. It's another name for puce. It. <laughs> what color is puce? Have you not heard of puce? <laughs> no. I have. It's been. I was in high school the last time I heard somebody say that word. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I've that, heard of it. That would ex- that that is basically where my sense of humor is. That's my uh, sense of humor is at the <laughs> freshman and high school level. Yeah, puce is like a maroon pinkish. Okay. It's a dark red or purpley browning color. I feel like you're making this up because nope. you just heard said like pink, maroon, puce. brown. Those are all three <laughs> different colors. All right. Well, I'm the trying internet. to explain. The internet, tell, what does it tell you? It's, uh, it's spelled P-U-C-E, apparently. And uh, it's a medium grayish red-violet color. Okay, I take it back. Take it back. <laughs> There's a Wikipedia page about it. <laughs> so, so, Christy, I think the reason that color jumped into my head is because, A, it would be nobody else's favorite color. B, um, half the people would think I'm making it up, and the other half wouldn't believe me. And C, it it's like seventeen percent awkward. You're like, you're. Like, should I be offended that you just said this word to me? You know, like right. there's a little bit of thought of like, who who came up with the word puce, <laughs> right? So anyway, that's I think that's good. I learned it, something. It has no nothing to do with its hue, and everything to do with the work the word does. Yeah, there we go. There's probably a lesson in that somewhere, Matt. <laughs> that'd be a, probably, that'd be a lesson that'd be to a me. Lesson to you. Yep. <laughs> yes. Oh man. Yes. Well, hey, uh, I'm drinking a smoothie today, and okay. my smoothie is close to puce. Oh, that color. might be puce. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that's that. probably healthy. I'll drink, yeah, I'll drink. If to you that. drink something that's puce, it that. probably is yeah. healthy. Mm-hmm. Probably. I'm just yeah. drinking. I'm drinking really creamed up coffee, which is oh, not healthy. That's not puce. beige. Beige. Kind of a beige. <laughs> Pretty much anything you eat that's beige, not healthy. Yeah. So I'm drinking black coffee. So I don't think about this often, Christy, but when I do, um, when I do, I, I think about it. Uh, I'm thinking right now about. <laughs> what, I'm either like, not thinking about it or I'm thinking about it. Those mm-hmm. are the two modes I have in my yep. life. And I'm going to choose thinking about it. Go. Yeah, okay. I one of the ways to like torture you is would to be, not give me cream. Is to like take away sugar from you. Oh, yeah, it would be, yes. Y'all, don't do that. <laughs> can you Can you do that? How would you do that? Don't do All that. All of a sudden, I got panicky. I do not do that. Christy. 
You just told several and several of people yeah. that that I yeah. I'm yeah. just thinking like I I think about the things I I can like I can fast from coffee or I could fast from you know this and that. But I'm like there's certain things I just can't fast from. Yeah. yeah. And I was just thinking you you like sugar. Yeah. I do. I I really do. And it can be a small amount, but I still need it. <laughs> Give me that delicious <laughs> sugar. So, I can handle oh, it. I can quit anytime. Um, yeah, well, yeah, well, we should get to this interview with Shane. We should. Speaking of sugar, Shane is yeah. a sweet guy. His nickname is Sugar. Segways, <laughs> <laughs> y'all. He's a sweet guy. No, he really is. Uh, he's a he's a very nice guy. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but also he uh, wrote a book. He had a relationship with John Perkins, uh, which is pretty cool, and uh, wrote a book uh, on his reflections. On his conversations uh, with John Perkins called "Go and Do," yeah. Uh, what's the uh, what's the subtitle of this book? Nine axioms. I There's nine axioms. Nine axioms. Oh, hey, speaking of axioms, I remember mm-hmm. thinking, "Hey, uh, we wrote a book on axioms." <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, you can pre-order our book. Uh, it's coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, this uh, this book is nine axioms for peace and transformation. Is that is that where? Yeah, uh, yeah. that's kind of what we're. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, it's it's a great uh, little book. Great little reflections. So. Yeah, and we've known Shane a long time. It was great to finally yeah. have a. You know, not that we need a reason to have people on, but uh, we finally yeah. had like a. This is a good reason to have Shane yeah. on. So, yeah. and some of you know him from. He does a podcast called Seminary Dropout, mm-hmm. and uh, has interviewed tons of guests and i remember yeah. listening to him before we started our podcast and thinking i don't think i could ever do that and no. um you know yeah. two years in i think i was right yeah. so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast is uh something different that's true yeah yeah so i could never do the seminary dropout podcast that's not my podcast ben <laughs> right yeah <laughs> people would be confused they'd be like who is this guy this isn't hands off man. yeah yeah uh, uh well yeah. we should get to shane and yeah. uh yeah, let's do it yeah dive right know. in yeah, let us know what your favorite color is. Yeah, this is yes. like, or what color you feel like describes you. Mm. You know, you can't you know? use puce though. That's you can't use puce. Yeah, <laughs> Matt. Matt needs to be Matt unique in this it. case. That's yeah. right. Look, I need this. Uh, I need this could, for me. Okay, I need this. I need this for me. Uh, <laughs> all right, friends. <laughs> all right, Shane. let's get into Here's it. Shane. <laughs> Shane Blackshear joins the Gravity Leadership Podcast today, and we're chatting about his new book that he co-wrote with John Perkins. The title is Go and Do, Nine Axioms on Peacemaking and Transformation. Shane has his own podcast, Seminary Dropout, one of our favorites, and he's on the pastoral team at Austin Mustard Seed in Austin, Texas, where he lives with his wife and his two kiddos. Shane, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> well, uh, we have been wanting to have you on for a while. Uh, we've known Shane personally and have enjoyed his podcast a great deal. And uh, this new book gives us some amazing things to chat about. Uh, Shane, this book is basically, uh, one way to describe it is you uh, listening to John Perkins' life and distilling uh, truths that that he embodies and has taught and has lived out and then sharing them with 
the broader church. And I want to maybe back up at the beginning. How did the idea for this book come to be? Well, I've told the story before um, how how it came to be. I actually reached out to uh, Dr. Perkins' organization at the time uh, for an interview for my own podcast. And uh, I didn't know at the time what his life was like. He was already in his 80s at that point. And so I thought, maybe he's retired, not doing this kind of thing anymore. And much to my surprise, pretty quickly, someone from his organization got back and said, hey, uh, Dr. Perkins would love to do this interview. And actually, he's going to be in Austin. Would you like to do it face-to-face? And I thought, wow, that, I would love that. How cool would it be to meet this person uh, in, in real life? And, you know, of course, at that time, I had read his books, was just a huge, huge fan of him and his life. So I thought this is going to be just such a cool honor to be able to do this face to face. And they had also asked at the time if I would send the questions ahead of time, which is not something normally I do. Normally, the hour before the interview, I'm scratching my last question down. Uh, (laughs) Don't give away our secrets. Don't give away our secrets, Shane. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't speak for all podcasters. I'm just saying this is how I operate. Uh, so yeah, that's how that's how Ben operates too. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so uh, I said I did that. I honored that, you know. And then uh, came day for the interview, so I drive to downtown Austin, and uh, uh, we, uh, Doctor Perkins, in the, in the he's kind of has a intern that's with him, and. Uh, I got there a little bit early and they're eating breakfast in the lobby. So they invite me to come sit down and, you know, make introductions. And he said, you, he said, those questions you sent to me, those kind of tell a little story. And I would like for us to write a book together. And yeah, exactly. That's how, that's exactly how I felt. (laughs) Yeah, dude. And I, and I, I, quickly like like just yes kind of like leapt out of my body and <laughs> and then i real i thought um you're shane you're so stupid he was saying that you you wrote so many questions that you could have written a book together um <laughs> and but then he kept talking and i realized no he was serious he really wanted to do that <laughs> <laughs> So, so you were you were like flattered, then embarrassed, mm-hmm. then flattered again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was a it was a All roller coaster, a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, what followed was that day we did the interview we had been think we had been planning on, and exchanged numbers, and then I would say every other about every other week for the next two years we would call each other, and with not much of an agenda, really, I would just record our conversations and uh, eventually get around to transcribing them. And we just did that for a really long time. Not, and there really wasn't uh, much of a, um, uh, oh, how do I phrase this? Like there wasn't much of a trajectory. I don't think we knew what we wanted the book to be. I was just asking him questions that were important to me. To, to hear what he had to say. And so we did this for a very long time. And at, some, at one point I flew out to Jackson and I stayed at his house for a few days. 
And then a couple of years later, he flew out to my house and stayed at my house for a few days. And it was just the whole journey was just such a, such an honor to be a part of. And, and so, you know, at some point I start kind of thinking, okay, I've got all this material. What's it going to be? Uh, you know, he's got two memoirs out, so we didn't, he didn't really need another memoir. Um, and I knew that we had something good there. Like he's just, he's just full of so much wisdom. And I realized as we were talking, as the years passed, that I was seeing these themes in his life that all I also felt like the Holy Spirit was teaching me in my own life. And, and of course, he was kind of speaking from past experience, and I was kind of seeing these things for the first time. Hmm. And so that's kind of where the the nine nine chapters, the nine axioms kind of came from. I kind of said, here's all this material. Here's what I see here. Um, here are these kind of nine themes, nine points. And so that's kind of how that all came to be. Yeah, that's amazing. So as John shared about his past, you felt like your present and future shame was catching up to John's past. And there was this intersection then where you could hear what John had learned as something you were learning and and then the that that the fruit of that is then this book. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. You kind of um you know, when you hear one wise person say something, you kind of you go, like, okay, let's keep tabs on that. And then you keep if you keep talking to wise people and those wise people are all saying the same things, then you really start to say, okay, there's something, there's something about that. Like that's a key to something. And mm-hmm. yeah, again, as I was kind of living and at this point going through my thirties and learning a little bit about life, I was really seeing, okay, there's, there's something here. I feel like I'm discovering this for myself while also reading about it and hearing about it playing out in his life as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah, the book, you know, is structured as nine axioms, which uh, is great. Um, I'm familiar with the term. Uh, <laughs> anyway, our listeners will know that we have a book, uh, Matt and I have a book coming out called, uh, uh, it, it uses the word axioms to kind of refer to, you know, the, the same way that you're using it, kind of these axiomatic statements, these uh, kind of core truths is one, uh, one of the ways that some of the churches that uh, adopt our material talk about it. Um, and yeah, you sort of distill... Uh, your conversations and your learning from John into these nine axioms, which if you could identify um, one of these axioms that felt like it was the most challenging for you uh, to learn about, to write about, uh, which one would it be and why? Gosh. um, I I think the one that comes to mind is that is, is the one, and I, I'm I'm not a great wordsmith, but the way we, we phrased it in the book was, it, it will cost you something. Mm. Um, I think that for the kind of the way of modern American evangelicalism is, um, you know, you, you have a, you make a decision about Christ and then you kind of get on with your life, m- maybe a little more being a little more nice you know? (laughs) Right. Um, right. And what you see in 
John's life is that having an encounter with Christ was just like a train wreck into his way of life. Hmm. And for him, I talk about part of his story is he had moved to California and he was living there in the fifties and his, he came from the deep South and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I say like, I don't think California was no like utopia of racial justice, but it was, it was very different than the deep South. And he had, he had really established a life for himself, you know, a great job and uh, bought a home Mm -hmm. and, and family and kids and stuff. And then had this encounter with Christ and became convicted that he needed to move back to the deep South and uh, minister to, to the black community there. And um, he really doesn't draw out how much of a sacrifice that was, but I really like, that's a big thing to me that he would would give up that kind of, you know, that modicum of um, security that he had and, and comfort. And, so, you know, it's, it's, I just feel like, um, boy, like if it never costs us anything, I don't know if we're doing it right, you know? Right. Um, right. yeah. Yeah. I, I was, you know, a few weeks ago we had, um, Christina Edmondson on the podcast who wrote, uh, the book Faithful Anti-Racism recently with Chad, uh, Brennan, I think. Um, and one of the quotes, um, that I think was really profound, uh, from her during that podcast relates to this axiom that it will cost you something. She, cause I think what she's referring to, I mean, the quote, the quote is, um, let me find it, make sure I got it right. What would it cost you if this perspective was true? So if like all the things that black people have been telling us for years, right? If, if the things about, you know, justice and the systemic racism and all of this stuff, if that's true, what would it cost you? And I thought it was a profound question because I think oftentimes we feel the implications of those costs, especially as white people, like we feel the implications of the cost of hearing this call to discipleship and hearing this call for, you know, to justice and and to practicing justice. I think we feel the implications in our bodies and then our minds very quickly start coming up with reasons why it can't be true or shouldn't be true. Or, you know, we argue with it like from that perspective. And I think we, you know, we don't really get anywhere. So I thought her question was really profound because it, it just gets us into this what if and, and helps us maybe reckon with, well, if it was true, what would that cost me? And maybe that's the reason I'm resistant to it <laughs> is I'm really attached to this thing that I feel like it's, you know, it's going to cost me. And so um, I think that's a, uh, yeah, I feel that as a deep challenge, um, mm-hmm. you know, just the implications of what this means for me, my life, my everyday life, you know, um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's really insightful. And I think that, um, sometimes I, for a lot of white folks like myself, um, it's going to cost us some ideas that we had about how we thought the way the world worked. Like it might cost us, um, holding, letting go of the concept of meritocracy. Right. And yeah, and, and it also, I feel like it also cost us, um, I feel like Christianity is something we do with our bodies. Um, yes. And so it will cost us not just concepts inside our heads, but not that those right. are less important, but also yes. the actual like lived lives that we have. And 
the, I think about the neighborhoods we live in and the places we send our kids to school. Yes. And the, the concept of, for most white people in America, the concept of success is means that we're, that our children, the mark of success is our children never having to rub shoulders with people who are not like them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's most, I think, I don't think most white people have that in view. They're not like my goal is for my that's kids to never have goal. to. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But that's the effect, right? If I can, if yeah. I can live in a place that is quote unquote safe enough that, you know, it's got a, it's gated and it's on this yeah. side of town and everything looks great. And then I can send my kid to the great school that's, you know, exclusive. And, right. and, and so the product of that is our kids never having to rub shoulders with people that don't yeah. look like them or, or don't have the same background and stuff. and us as well. Right. Us as adults. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like real encounters with Christ really disrupt that yes. paradigm. Yeah. Hi, my name is Carol from Fergus, Ontario, Canada. When I think about the years in my GLA cohort, I am filled with fond memories and gratitude. I looked forward to our time together each week. In my second year, although I was the only woman and Canadian and only one of two non-pastors, this group saw how God was working in my life and encouraged me along the way as we processed our Kairos moments together. I was at a point of transition in my life and having people who were learning the same things and processing with them was incredibly valuable for me. We were all from such different places and contexts, but it didn't matter. We helped each other see the world through the eyes of Jesus. This was a safe and encouraging space to process what I was going through and to equip me to be a leader who noticed the activity of God in my life. I'm so thankful for the work of Gravity Leadership. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. The explicit paradigm, which sort of feels so natural to us, um, again, as white, speaking as white, a white person, um, is that the thing that we might explicitly say is that what we're seeking for ourselves and for our kids is sort of this economically and socially upwardly mobile life. And so we just arrange our lives in such a way that we can make more money, live in better neighborhoods, create more safety. You know, like we, we, we live in such a way that these things feel obvious to us, but you're right. The secondary effects of that are actually contributing to and participating in uh, forms of systemic injustice that go back centuries. Um, and so it, it, it is really challenging for us to rethink. There's no easy answers for this, by the way, right? Like that, I think that's part of the deep challenges. That's part of what it costs. That's part of the cost I feel as well is it's not just like a quick switch you can flip and say, oh, here's the six things to do. And now you're living righteously and practicing justice. It's, it's really hard to figure out personally how to interact with systems that, that, you know, go beyond our own families and our own personal lives. And mm -hmm. anyway, it's really hard to figure out. I think that's one of the costs for us. 
is living in that tension and really wrestling with yeah. what does this mean for me? Yeah, this this conversation about the cost reminds me of your chapter, one of the axioms on being incarnational. Um, mm. And you lay out <clears throat> what John has talked about before, the three R's, I think the relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. Um, can you share, because I think that's some of the ways the cost uh, mm. gets out mm. in the world, right? Some of the way that um, the cost shows up and is manifest. Can you share a bit about these three and then what John taught you uh, about them? Yeah, yeah. It, it's so interesting. Like, I feel like those those three concepts really got politicized in the last decade or so. Right. In, in a way that I feel like they weren't. And like, it, so I don't know, it's kind of, I don't exactly know how to feel about it because part of me thinks like, well, it is radical. It should be like, you know, politicized in a, in a way. Um, but, but part of me thinks like, no, I think we would all like, before we learn that, no, that's what the other side thinks. And so I can't think that, uh, like, I think it would have been more acceptable. And especially when you read, um, I think John's first book goes into to depth of like how they discovered those three R's and the book is let justice roll down. Um, it's just very, uh, logical. So for instance, he was saying that, um, the ones that would make it out to their community, they had to go to, uh, this is, you know, back in the fifties and sixties, they had to go to Northern schools to, uh, get educated, um, because those are the ones who were affording black folks, good educations. And so what would happen was, the ones that could do that would get out, go get educated and then not come back. And so, um, he, that's where the relocation came from. You've got to, we've got to relocate to come, come back to the communities, which you came from to, uh, help, uh, you know, to bring back those resources that you, you got. And so with, with each of the R's, yeah, redistribution and relocation. And what's the third one? Um, I should have the book in front of me, but reconciliation, uh, right? Yeah. Reconciliation. Um, they really like John did not come up with those by reading a book. He was like on the ground seeing what it needed, what, what it took for human flourishing. And so they were just very, for him, very practical and very kingdom steps that people needed to take for the communities to thrive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I as I read that section, Shane, I was just thinking about how uh, the difference it makes that John is a black man and I'm a white man when we think about these three things. So my 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 white body moving into a place, relocating into a place can be a force of um justice or injustice. It can be a it can be a force of um maybe proximity or joining, and it could also be a force of gentrification and pushing people out. And how that's just been, uh, and then reconciliation as well. Like, I uh, have a lot of instincts about what it takes to reconcile that I, I don't trust anymore. Like, I actually think uh, maybe I don't know the best way to reconcile, and maybe I need to learn what that would even, what that would even mean. Um, and so I, for me, there's like this gleaning of wisdom from John, but then there's also this work of translation that uh, John embodies this in a way that is distinct and unique and particular to 
to his place in the world, uh, and that place is not my place. I, I'm just wondering, like, have you had those? Have you done some of that same work? And what what are some of the questions that seem prudent to you, or or some of the experiments that you've tried as you've tried to maybe um, move out into these these this way of being incarnational? Yeah, and you know, I'm so glad you said that because I hadn't thought about this in a while. But part of uh, well, if you, you see the book, it's very it's a very small book. Um, a lot of there was tons of material that did not make it into the book. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the process was getting to ask John those questions. And so, for instance, he was talking about um, the kind of the relocation dynamic and uh, you know going into help neighborhoods and. What was cool is at that time, I had, we had just moved into a neighborhood that was a historically black neighborhood, was uh, probably at that time and this time was probably uh, more Latino. But um, so I'm just asking him like, look, so like, you know, we've re- relocated, but like, that's not that, like just us moving here is not the end all be all. And how do I how can I be a good neighbor? How do I steward this, this, uh, situation? And, you know, and so he would talk about, you know, you're gonna, if you're doing it right, you're going to help your community. You're going to volunteer at your kid's school, which will help the school. Um, you know, you're going to, uh, help your neighbor's properties more, be more beautiful, you know? And so, and then I would ask him like, okay, but that's going to make their taxes go up. Like what, like, how do I, how do I do this? How do I live here? You know? And just to be able to wrestle with those things openly and there are no easy answers to those questions. Um, but you're right. Like I like translating that into where we are and I don't have any easy answers other than extreme humility and, um, having a posture of, of, um, learning from my neighbors yeah, and, and those around me. Yeah. It seems like that combines a couple other axioms that you have, including knowing history and imaginative imagination and creativity and being the church. Um, something we've tried to do at our church, we, uh, just came out of a class looking at mammon and looking at how mammon reigns and rules in our world and, and um, maybe going beyond just uh, um, how do you feel about money? If you feel the right way about it, then you're probably being faithful. Or if you give 10% away, you're probably being faithful. We're trying to really understand how does, how does mammon mm-hmm. order our lives and how does it um, maybe um, colonize our common sense about the way things should be. And one of the things that we've learned to, to give ourselves permission to do is to to try contingent experiments. So, you know, I think part of my impulse is to figure it out and then like stamp it and then it's like we're we're good to go. It's like you a formula I mean? now or like <laughs> yeah, it's well, easy we can easily apply it everybody or, in the church. Or yeah. just like this is now a timeless thing that we do. You know what yeah, we yeah. you know we collect canned goods and that's how we end world hunger you know or whatever right <laughs> uh, and I right. think that giving ourselves permission to do contingent experiments allows us to uh, do what you're saying Shane like to to listen to learn to develop mm-hmm. wisdom there's almost this acceptance that we're going to fail 
in yeah. some ways, and that yeah. failure could could birth uh, new insight, new wisdom. And so, um, I, I'm as I'm reading your book, I'm sort of coming along behind you, and mm-hmm. like seeing the, seeing the intersection of our church uh, in the intersection of of you and John and your conversation. So it was extremely helpful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that connection. I think. Yeah, and I can't remember. I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but um, I also, during that time, kind of had a reckoning with the role that money is played in my life. And I feel like mm. I <laughs> I lived my most of my life as if Jesus didn't say much about money uh, when Jesus said a whole lot about money. Right. <laughs> um, right. And I, uh, I came across, at some point, I came across this article that said they'd done a survey and they said that most millionaires didn't consider themselves rich. Yeah. And I, that had a profound effect on me because I thought what my natural reaction to that is like shame on those millionaires for not realizing their, uh, you know, privilege and, and their wealth mm-hmm. and, and all that. And, but then I thought, you know, um, the, 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, if you had told me how much my household income was today, I would have said, Oh, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing pretty well. Like that's, that's great. Uh, but ask me now if I feel like I'm doing pretty well, the answer is like, no, I feel like I'm just getting by. And that is the way, that's the way that money operates is you. That's the way mammon works right there. Someone wise says that's the way mammon works. Yeah. Um, It, I, no, it's true, dude. The, the the it operates by making me feel like it's never enough, yeah. and yeah. and it's not just uh, uh, this is how I felt like it worked was, you know, there's so here's here's there's money here, but way over there there's a cliff, so I need to be careful to not fall yeah. off that cliff. But it's way over there, right? Yeah. And it's more like I felt like it's more like. No, it's it's holes in the ground all around me, and those holes move. Those holes are chasing me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's like someone had someone had said that to be, um, we, like we think with racism that we just don't have to run towards it, and that's good. But what we don't realize is that there's a walkway, there's a moving walkway that we're standing on that is pushing us towards racist acts and actions. And so to resist that, we actually have to run the other direction because, because we're on this walkway that's moving. Right. And I think that that is the same way that money is working too, that our, our abusive relationships towards money, just standing still is not good enough because we're on Mm. the moving walkway that's pushing us in a certain direction. So we've yeah. got to we've got to turn and actually run the other other way. Yeah. And so yeah. when I frame it that way in my head, when I when I think of something like tithing, it's not something I have to do. It's like an exercise that actually allows me to run the other direction. To say if I don't want this controlling me, a good way to do that is to give a lot of it away. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, it's similar to the, to the term, I think, anti-racist where, you know, this, a similar point is being made, um, by people who advocate the use of that term, right. Where it's like, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not racist. Like I don't hate black people. 
Um, there ha- because there's cultural forces that are invisible to us, especially as white people, that are moving us, right, towards participating in systems that are racist. And I think mammon works the same way, right? Or wealth or, you know, however we want to talk about money, where if we are just saying like, well, it's good enough if I, I'm not greedy and I'm not a billionaire, you know, and probably not even a millionaire. So there we go. That's probably good enough. Um, But yeah, we actually have to resist the, we have to become (laughs) anti-mammonists. Anti-mammon. There you go. Practice anti-mammon. Yeah, something like that. No, I, I guess, Chen, I just share that to say like, I think that the strength of this book is that you get detailed enough into the life, into John's life and into your life so mm. that it it's sticky and it actually has substance. We're not it's not chicken soup for the soul, but it actually has substance. But then it's also it does do some of that imaginative creative work. Like I was able to inhabit this book in my own world and see things more clearly develop some conviction, maybe even some confidence, some clarity. Uh, and so it's, it's been a, it's, it's an excellent book. And like you said earlier, you said it's not long and it, it is, it's, it's short enough to uh, digest, you know, in a weekend, which is, which is great. Um, so maybe, maybe by way of wrapping up, I don't know, you're the only person I know who's got to spend two years in conversations with John Perkins, which you know, that might be like in a silent auction that the price tag on that might go pretty high. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Sometimes the farther away you stay from quote Christian celebrities, the more you benefit from them. And the closer you get, the the less benefit you get. Um, but I get the sense that maybe this was the opposite for you. Like reading John's books made you want to interview him for a podcast, but spending two years with him uh, changed your life. I'm, I'm wondering, what did you learn? What did you learn spending time with John that you couldn't learn from his books? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, and, and hard to describe, like seeing... It was enough time to like really see the contours of his life. And even especially the the time that I got to spend in his house, um, you know, sleeping in his upstairs for, I think I was there for four or five days. And, um, you know, his wife coming in and out and he, uh, so here's one takeaway was, He has these, I don't know if he's doing this on purpose for the sake of grounding himself, but he has these grounding rhythms, Um, you know, like for instance, when I was there um, at one point in the afternoon, he's like, Hey, I got to go pick some uh, okra in the backyard. Do you want to come with me? I was like, yeah, I, I would like to pick okra with you, please. Uh, And so we, we walk out and, and do that, you know, um, one morning, what, uh, I guess it was probably the first morning I was there and we were about to kind of get started for the day in our conversation. And he said, Hey, would it be okay if we, if we, um, just did this in my kitchen and my kitchen table, 
uh, instead of, you know, going into some office somewhere. And, and of course I was like, yeah, sure. I would love to do that. Are you kidding me? It sounds great. And at the end of our time, the night before I left, we were sitting at that table talking as we had been doing every day. And he said, he said, you know, that you would come here and sit with me at my kitchen table and us talk together and, and that we could, he said specifically that we could do it here because his wife who has been in relatively poor health, um, he knew that she would come in and out from the bedroom and he would get to see her if we were talking at the kitchen table. Um, and he started to tear up and he said that we could, we could do this here in my kitchen table and not go in some office. And so that I could see Vera Mae when she comes out. Um, and, and I mean, he really, he starts tearing up and, and as do I at that point. Um, and seeing this simple act that was absolutely no sacrifice on my part. Um, but hmm. he got to spend a little time with his wife as we were working and to see those contours of his life. Um, he is not like, he has never been one that is like arms away from uh, people who are in pain and people who need help. Uh, and, and, you know, even now when he could, as he's published so many books and he could, he could be, you know, uh, big R retired at this point is still yeah. involved with people's lives and people who are hurting. And, um, you know, he's driving me around the neighborhood and showing me houses that his organization is, has purchased so that single mothers can live there and, and knows those people's stories, you know, um, it, it was just something to behold. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good example, Shane, of how Paul describes his relationship to the Corinthians, you know, and how he says, you've got, you got a lot of book authors, 10,000 book authors, but you don't have many fathers. And I, I became your father, you know, and I think what I so deeply appreciate about just this conversation and your book is that I feel like in a real way, um, you got to experience John as a, as a parent, as a father, he was able to impart to you things that, that transcended, uh, words. And then, um, through that experience, you were able to give that away through this book. So, um, deeply grateful, man. Um, it's a great book. Well, thank you. Thank you both. I really do appreciate it. It was, um, uh, just an honor to be on, on the journey and kind of be a testament to it and a testament mm -hmm. to John's life. Um, and it means a lot that, um, that, that you guys would read it, that, that people would read it and perhaps, um, you yeah. know, get a little bit from John's life. Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Shane. I appreciate your time with us today. Um, besides picking up the book, um, which I'm assuming people can get uh, anywhere you buy books, as they say. Okay. They tell me. Um, how can people connect with you if they want to stay in touch or reach out, ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I'm always available by email, shane at shaneblackshire.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, that Shane B, and okay. uh, Facebook as well. Yep. Any of those would love mm -hmm. to connect with anybody. Okay. Right on. The book, again, 
is entitled Go and Do Nine Axioms on Peacemaking and Transformation from the Life of John Perkins. Shane, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, guys. What a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.